with topics ranging from how cloud computing is streamlining government operations to exploring the intersection of machine learning and healthcare data. Foley and Larder's Innovative Technology Insights podcast examines not just the legal ramifications of developments at the cutting edge of technology, but how they are affecting businesses, governments, and individuals. In each episode, we will lead discussions between researchers, industry leaders, and regulators for their thoughts on this changing world. So without further ado, let's get started. everyone and welcome. My name is Natasha Allen. I'm a partner in Foley's Silicon Valley and San Francisco offices and the co-chair of the AI subgroup within our innovative technology sector. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the new age of AI. Joining me to provide expertise on the topic is Mark Dredzi. Mark is the Associate Professor of Computer Science at Johns Hopkins University and a research scientist at Bloomberg. He received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2009 and also has extensive appointments in the biomedical informatics and data science under the Department of Medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine in the School of Medicine. Mark, thank you for joining me today. Hope you're doing well. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, let's get right into it. So we've called this podcast The New Age of AI. Please impart on us the information that you have with regards to what are some of the changes that are happening in AI technologies and how are they impacting or how will they impact us in the future? So we've really entered a new age of AI, I would say, in the last couple of years. For many, many years, people within AI and specifically within the field of natural language processing have been looking at how to build models that can really model what language is and how language functions. These models have a lot of utility. So there are models that are used in speech recognition systems, which are now everywhere. They're in models of translation of languages, which are becoming more ubiquitous. And so this has been a long running goal of the natural language processing and AI community for decades, really. In the past couple of years, we've seen really major advances in the underlying technology, first through deep learning, which are building very large neural networks for problems on lots of data, and then through advances in computing, where now we can build supercomputers that are well beyond anything we imagined possible even a couple of years ago. And so these language models have been adapted to this deep learning technology and to these now very large computers. And what we saw in doing this is they got, first of all, much better at the sorts of things that we were building them for. So if you ask these models, you know, given this sentence of once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away, and then ask them what came next, they would do actually a really good job of writing a whole paragraph about a knight or a fairy princess or an evil dragon. But then what we started to see is that because language encodes knowledge about the world, these systems and these algorithms were not just able to finish a sentence or finish a paragraph, but they really seemed to be learning things about our world. And when we started interacting with them, we realized they had capabilities far beyond what we were expecting. So for example, you can now turn to these models and ask, you know, how many states are there in the United States? And it knows that the answer is 50. You can ask it to take a, a, an article and rewrite it as a blog post or rewrite it as a headline. And it knows how to do that kind of translation. You can ask it to explain inferences. So 
if Sally had five apples and she gave one to John, will she have more or less apples and why? And that's a very simple question. And I think, you know, a kindergartner can answer that question. But these models can not only say that she has less apples, but they can explain why she has less apples, showing that they really do seem to understand something about what it means to give something to someone else. Some of the new models can actually explain jokes. If you ask them, why is this joke funny? They can actually walk through and explain why they're funny. So these are just some examples of what this technology is now able to do, which is unlike any technology that AI has developed previously. And that has really opened the door to a huge range of applications that people are now considering. And it has ramped up the excitement in the space of AI far beyond what we've really seen in previous years. That sounds amazing. What was the impetus behind this? Is it just more information being added to these various AI technologies? Or or what is the cause, you think, of this huge advancement? It's a lot of things happening simultaneously, really coming together. So I don't think our goal was to build models that were capable of doing the things that we now see them doing. Sure, that's a long-term goal of AI. I don't think we realized how close we were to the capabilities we now see. There were a couple things that were going on. So first of all, deep learning has really transformed AI and many of the subfields of AI, and that has been an unfolding process over the last decade. Deep learning has been the idea that we can build neural networks. So these are networks that have some similarity to how we conceptualize the brain is structured, and we build these very, very large networks. And by doing that, they really surpass the types of algorithms that became popular in the field in the 1990s and the 2000s. So that's one change. Another is the accessibility of data. I remember many years ago before the internet, if you said, well, I want a million words of English text, You couldn't just get a million words of English text, right? Where would you get that? You'd have to start scanning in books, right? And now a high schooler can download all of Wikipedia and get millions of words of English text. You can download gigabytes and gigabytes of data from the internet and have as much text as you need in many different languages. And then another thing that's really happened is a revolution in the computing that we have. And I think if you look at the increase in computing over the past 40, 50 years, it's kind of a steady increase, but it has really gotten to a point where the amount of computing available to individuals and certainly to companies is so far beyond what we imagined even a couple of years ago. Bringing together those computers, bringing together that data and bringing together these models have allowed us to build models that are literally using billions and billions of parameters. We're not talking about models that are half a trillion parameters. And If that sounds like a big number, that's all you should take out of that. That's a big number. That was unimaginable even five years ago. And that has really unlocked the door to a new level of capabilities in artificial intelligence. So taking a perspective from a developer, there are, you know, legal regulations coming in. I think I just saw something about employment and AI and how it may be discriminatory and how to guard against that. Are developers taking to account as they're building out these AI technologies, you know, taking into consideration future federal or state government regulations that may be coming into play? Are those on the forefront of the minds of developers or or not necessarily? I think it depends a lot on who the developers are. If you go talk to people at 
Facebook or Microsoft or Amazon, the big companies, I think they are very, very well aware of what regulation looks like and how regulation impacts their business. And I think they are well aware that there will be regulations for AI. This is such a transformational technology that government absolutely must have a role in representing society to decide what should be in and out of bounds. So let's look at a model of something that I think people are perhaps more familiar with, which is self-driving cars. So self-driving cars are something I think some of us have actually seen them, but I think many of us have heard about them. This is really a revolutionary technology in AI. The idea that you know, push to the limit. Maybe we won't even own cars in the future, right? We just push a button and a car in our neighborhood will come pick us up. The elderly will now be able to give up their licenses and still live in their home and still have transportation. That's a major reason why people, seniors, retire to different communities is transportation. Being able to have that kind of transportation in your home. Access to transportation for medical appointments. One of the big reasons why people don't make it to the doctor is simply they can't get there. This affects the poor. It affects the elderly. Having widespread accessible self-driving cars can do that. I think most people think about self-driving cars as, hey, I can read a book or watch a movie while on my commute to the office. But this is really transformational technology. At the same time, it is slow moving. The idea of self-driving cars has been around for quite a while now. And we've slowly seen this technology seep into vehicles over really the last half decade. At the same time in that space, regulators are still struggling to keep up. If you are driving a Tesla and self-drive is enabled and you get into an accident, who is liability, right? Are you liable because you should have been paying attention? Is Tesla the company liable because they built a faulty technology? Those are issues that are still being worked out. There are still open questions. So I use that as an example because that is a source of transformation that is widespread, but is actually pretty slow moving when it comes to AI and still regulators are struggling to keep up. When you talk about how AI is going to transform smart speakers or it's kind of how it's going to transform how you author documents or create images, take pictures, these are so ubiquitous. And there's so little understanding of what the concerns are and what should be regulated. So I think the big companies are very concerned because they need guidance, right? They need to know what will be in and out of bounds. And I don't think the regulators even know, certainly they don't know what will be in and out of bounds, but they're still struggling to understand the issues. When you look at more small companies in the startup space, the risk profile is completely different, right? If you develop a startup on a topic, and it's a high-risk topic, and you do something really terrible, and you're going to be sued, your startup closes and it fails, right? And I'm sure the investors are disappointed and the founders are disappointed, but that's a fairly common outcome, and that's a fairly low-risk outcome. That's completely different from Microsoft being on the hook for hundreds of billions of dollars in damages, right? So I think what's going on here is you have small companies and startups really moving very, very quickly to deploy these technologies and to use them and do innovative use cases and all this sort of stuff. And the bigger companies are investing heavily in the research, but I think there's still big, big questions of how this technology will impact practice. What can they do? What can't they do? And I think you can see these companies are asking regulators, please give us guidance. And the regulators are saying in turn, what are the issues that we should be aware of? What are the dangers of this technology? And I think we have a very poor understanding of that right now. 
Very, very interesting. So I want to touch on something that you had spoken about before and kind of connecting AI to the public health space. So you're in a very interesting position because of your associate professorship at Johns Hopkins University. So what do you think are some key opportunities for the future of AI in the public health space? So one of the effects of COVID has really been to expose gaps in our public health infrastructure. There were certain things that we thought we knew or that we thought we did well, and some of those things we were right about, and there's a lot of success stories that came out of COVID, but it was such a transformational and earth-shaking event in medicine and public health that it exposed a lot of cracks in the system. So there are a lot of areas where we're going to have to rebuild and rethink from the ground up. And in doing so, I think AI will be a major part of that conversation. So let me give just one example. So for many years, we have been developing forecasting models of epidemics and pandemics. If there's an outbreak in Seattle, how will that outbreak spread to the rest of the country? And there are many factors that traditionally go into these models. How infectious is the illness? How long are people infectious for? Where does it outbreak and where do those people travel, right? What we have not done largely is incorporate into those models the decisions that people make. And one thing that we saw in this pandemic is when the mask mandate went into effect, it didn't mean that everyone put on a mask, right? It meant that there was a wide range of compliance and adherence to that mandate, depending on where you lived, depending on the political climate. When we gave recommendations about travel or social distancing, those are not universally adhered to. And that ended up being one of the big factors that influenced the course of the pandemic. I think a lot of people thought, Once we get the vaccine, that's the hard part. And then we just get everyone vaccinated and we're done. And it turns out that get everyone vaccinated is much, much harder than some people thought it would be. And that people are not randomly getting the vaccine or not, but there's a lot of groups for various reasons that are remaining unvaccinated. The next generation of pandemic models has to model that. We have to model the behavioral, the cultural issues in how people behave in a pandemic. That is a space where I think AI will have a lot to say, partially because one of the strengths of AI is bringing into settings data from lots of places and oftentimes non-traditional data. You know, how do we take, for example, lots and lots of cell phone movements, which is things that happen in, in many countries. We looked at cell phones and how there was a movie around the country and translated those into how are people social distancing? How are they moving around? Many of us have gotten alerts on our phones, on our smartphones that say, you've had a COVID exposure, right? And that's because these phones are all exchanging random IDs, alerting each other who were around, right? So one of the things that AI really excels at is bringing this data into the conversation and then utilizing this very large data. And that is going to be really critical for the behavioral elements of forecast models. And then what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing AI companies today? The biggest challenge is really uh, hiring people. The interest in AI has increased far faster than we can possibly train people in this field. If you just look at the academic setting and you just say, how are universities hiring new computer science professors? So AI is the number one thing they're hiring in, and they're hiring everyone they can. Universities are making massive, massive investments. Dozens of faculty across the university 
all under the banner of AI. That will in turn, over the next couple of years, produce new PhDs, produce new master's students, but that is a very, very slow moving process. Companies need to move now, and I think one of the biggest problems they're facing is there is just not the talent pool in existence to draw from. That is even more of a problem when you look at more of a senior talent pool. So we are churning out, and I'm at Johns Hopkins, we're churning out as fast as we can people of training in machine learning, AI, data science, but these are very junior people. If you are a big company and you're thinking of investing in AI, the first step is to bring in senior people. And senior people don't grow on trees, right? Like <laughs> the only thing that produces senior people is time. And so I think one of the challenges a lot of companies have is just getting the talent. Even the big companies, if you look at you know Google or Amazon or DeepMind, which is a big player, they even struggle to bring in the talent because a lot of the really good people are being leached into the startup world, right? Because there's such unbelievable opportunity there as well. So everyone is hiring. Everyone is offering these crazy salaries to get talent. And if you're not a traditional player in this space, it's very, very hard for you to compete. You know, if you're a big retailer, let's say, Right? So you're a major retailer, I'm not going to name any names here, and you realize, hey, AI is critical to the future of our company. You know, you look at Amazon, which uses AI for deciding what people are going to buy, deciding what this holiday season's big products are going to be, deciding how do you stock products in which warehouse around the country, how do you arrange shipments, right? All of these things are being decided by artificial intelligence. And you're a major retailer. You realize that that's the future. But where do you go for that talent? How do you build up that internal talent? And that is a really, really hard task. And I think that's really a bottleneck right now. We need more people going to this field. We need more people trained in this field. And that is really a struggle for companies. I think another aspect to it is this is not a technology where you can just download it off the internet and there you've got it, right? You really need the people to figure out what to use, how to use it, and then critically for your business, where are the opportunities? The opportunities for in the retail sector look completely different than other sectors, like in the home building sector, right? These are completely different businesses, and you don't just want someone with a master's degree in computer science, but you need someone who really understands your business, and you need that kind of integration to figure out how to make the best use of the technology that's available. The technology is surprisingly available off the shelf. It is really amazing how much is available. So I'll give you an example. So about a, a year or two ago, OpenAI, which is one of the players in this space, created a model called GPT-3 that was a major investment, was probably millions of dollars of computing, forget the salaries of the people involved, and that was really banner headlines in terms of this new kinds of technology that was built. Very recently, Facebook built the same system essentially and then posted it on their website for you to download. That is really astonishing that companies are spending millions of dollars investing in products, not products, but the core technologies, and then giving it away. The computing space, right, if you're like, how do I train these models, you don't have to build up a data center. You go to Azure or Google Cloud or Amazon Web Services, and you can get all this compute on demand. The software that is in the open source movement to support this stuff is amazingly good. So on one hand, accessibility of the technology is really difficult to understand, unless you're in this space, just how much is being given away. At the same time, you need someone who has a PhD in computer science focused in AI in order to use any of it, 
right? And that's really the challenge. That's why we come back to the labor. It's really building up the resources in terms of the human capital to make use of the technology that's out there. So are you finding that more people are enrolling in these courses or is there a lag even in the enrollment in computer science and, you know, machine learning? What are you seeing in terms of enrollment? Enrollments across computer science are off the charts. We struggle at Johns Hopkins. We keep wondering, when are we going to hit the peak? When are we going to see the numbers level out? If you look back historically, there was a huge increase in interest in computer science in the 90s with the dot-com boom. And then with the bust, there was a, a huge drop-off in CS interest. That peak looks like a quaint history compared to manned now. It's really unreal. And this is why computer science departments all across the country are doubling in size in many cases, just to keep up with the demand. So there really is, I think, an understanding among, you know, the undergraduate population and the master's population and graduate in general, that this is a very exciting area with lots of opportunities. And so we are seeing huge demands in enrollment. Not just that, but there are new programs that are starting. So at Hopkins specifically, we have in the past couple of years started a new master's program in data science. We have started a certificate program in human language technology. And that's not even talking about how much our existing programs have been adapted to include courses in AI. The number of courses now we offer in AI has dramatically increased over the past couple of years, and we still struggle because we don't offer enough. The demand is is really uh, intense. I'll just give you one anecdote. The first time I taught my class in machine learning about 10 years ago, I had 40 students enroll. This fall, I might have 200 students. Oh, wow. I hope not, but uh, if, if not. <laughs> and the course is now offered twice a year. It's not 40 to 200. It's the class is now offered twice, whereas I used to be offered once. And now, of course, I'm not the only person teaching these classes. So there are now many related classes that you can take instead of my class. And still, we have not met the demand. My final question, which just to sum everything up. So say you are a company that, and maybe it's one of the established companies that's trying to make themselves relevant and use AI to make their companies more efficient or however they want to use it, and they feel like they're behind, what do you think they can do to kind of catch up to their competitors? So I think the first thing that I'll just address is to really emphasize that the companies who don't yet see the value of AI are really in danger. You know, I think that a lot of companies when, you know, the dot-com bubble came around, right? Like companies looked at Amazon and said, well, Amazon just sells books and we're major retailers. We know retail, Amazon doesn't. And I think what Amazon has demonstrated is the retail industry isn't about retail. It's about data and understanding data and understanding the customers through data. And Amazon's successful because they redefined what retail could be. And I think many industries run that risk right now that what it means to be a player in that industry is likely to change because of AI. So if you don't see how AI fits into your business, I really think you need to look harder because you run the risk of, you know, not existing. I'll throw one other example in there, Tesla. So Tesla is not a car company. It's a data company and it's a software company and they are redefining what it means to build cars. And that is the level of transformation that AI represents. So if you've concluded that AI is critical to your business, where do you go? Like, how do you start? So I think that a number of the traditional sources actually offer good solutions. So a lot of the traditional consulting companies 
companies out there are investing heavily in AI because they need to help their customers. So a lot of the existing relationships that companies have with outside advisors are actually a good place to start. I think also bringing people in to the company, creating roles in the company, whether in that that's in the CTO office or product office, I think that's really important. It's very daunting for a company to figure out how to hire an AI expert when they don't know anything about AI. But I think that that is a direction that's really important to go. You really need someone who understands your business and how this technology is going to revolutionize your business. It's not enough to have a generic expert from the outside. You really want someone inside that understands your company, understands your business, understands your industry, and can figure out how to make the best use of these transformative technologies for your own business needs. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mark. This was super informative. Appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about the new age of AI. Thank you everyone for joining us and hope to see you soon. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner LLP on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. And listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness, and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, The contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.